I want to, uh, we're going to uh, address a Christmas story from the book of Matthew, and I want Nate, if he would, to read to us Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you in Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Thank you, Nate. You did great. Thank you for that. Some of the most popular characters in the Christmas narrative are the wise men. Matthew chapter 2, as Nate has just read, introduces us to this band of travelers that have mystified and intrigued us for centuries. It's fascinating how all of a sudden some wise men just materialize from out of nowhere. These fascinating men just show up, drop off some gifts, and then vanish into thin air. Or it seems that's what's happened. Question. Who were these bizarre and exotic men? Were there three of them? Were those men actual ancient kings? Were, were those men riding on camels? And why were those men searching for a Jewish Messiah? We're going to answer those questions this morning. The word that is translated as wise men in the original language is magoi. Magoi. And that word magoi has been transliterated, not translated, transliterated, meaning respelled. That word has been respelled from the Greek language into the English language, and that respelled word is magi. So these wise men are now called magi. From a biblical perspective, these magi can be traced to the ancient Babylonian empire. According to Daniel, the Magi served the ancient Babylonian ruler Nebuchadnezzar. The original Magi assisted Nebuchadnezzar as priest for an ancient religion called Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism, to some degree, resembled Judaism, but those similarities were counterfeit. Because Zoroastrianism primarily functioned as an occultic religious practice. The ancient Zoroastrian priests were called magi. 
and practice all sorts of occultic phenomena, from sorcery to wizardry to witchcraft. The word magic is also derived from this ancient word magoi. Magoi, or magi, magic, and magician are all related words. The question is, why are these magi called wise men? The answer is because, and don't miss this, the answer is because these were wise men. Uh, These gentlemen were highly intelligent, highly educated and trained in uh, a number of different professions. Um, In addition to serving as Zoroastrian priest, Magi doubled as scientists, mathematicians, architects, philosophers, doctors, and evil, even legal authorities. An example, our word magistrate refers to someone enforcing the law as a judge. Magistrate is another direct derivative from this ancient word magoi. One of the problems at Christmas is that some of the accounts of Jesus' birth have been reduced to elaborate fables. Singers and storytellers have embellished the Christmas legend to where the average person doesn't know which details are authentic and which ones have been fabricated. An example, the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is a nice song. We enjoy singing that song. The problem is, in a technical sense, we don't know that those angels actually sang. According to Luke 2, verses 13 and 14, those angels are seen announcing the birth of Jesus to some shepherds in the field. The text reads, the angels were saying not singing, saying glory to God in the highest. That reminds me of the church bulletin that misprinted another popular Christmas carol. Instead of angels we have heard on high, the bulletin read, angels we have heard get high. Uh, (laughs) Things happen. Now, don't misunderstand this. I'm not a Scrooge. So I'm not suggesting we eliminate these musical selections from our Christmas repertoire. Some benign artistic license is fine. It's acceptable. I just want us to see that sometimes there is a significant difference between what is historical and factual and what is fable or speculation. Let me mention some biblical and historical inaccuracies about these magi. One is there is no evidence from either a biblical or historical perspective that there were just three magi. There is no evidence, no documentation from a historical perspective or in the biblical record that there were just three magi. We sing the carol, Christmas carol, we three kings of Orient are, but we don't know that. The reason tradition teaches there were three magi, is because the number of magi is thought to correspond to the number of gifts those magi brought to Jesus. Those magi brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the logic is one gift per magi. So three gifts translates into three magi. But that's not necessarily the case, because magi often traveled in large groups, large numbers of them. There might have been three magi. 
There might have been 13 magi or 33 magi. No one knows the exact number of magi that came to see Jesus. Second, is that for more than six centuries, through different cultures and global empires, magi assisted different royalties. But magi were not, not kings themselves. In some ancient societies, magi actually assisted in selecting different kings and sometimes even crowned the king. But magi weren't kings because those men, as we said earlier, were Zoroastrian priests. Number three, there is no available information to document these magi were oriental. There is no available historical and or biblical information to document these men, these magi were oriental. Now, uh, according to the PC police, uh, that word orient and oriental is now considered offensive and insulting. Former President Obama signed a bill into law that banned the words orient and oriental from all federal documents. Now, that is completely nonsensical because the word orient and oriental are geographic words. Those words have nothing to do with race. Uh, the word oriental means east of the east, meaning of those countries east of Europe, just as occidental means of the west, meaning those countries in Europe and west of Europe, those countries on this continent. That means orient and oriental uh, is a geographical word. It is not a racial slur. Is calling someone from Alabama a southerner, is that an offensive racial slur? No, it isn't. And that's the reason that uh, it's not wrong. I don't have a reason to use the word oriental. I, have, I don't even have an oriental rug, actually. But um, I don't use that word. But in, the, in the, the actual sense of the word, it's a geographic a label. It is not a racial label. Um, the reason that song title is We Three Kings of Orient Are is because Matthew said uh, these were wise men from the east, and since Orient means of the East, that's the reason it's the title it is. The question is, where in the East were these Magi from? From East Asia? From East India? From East L.A.? Where were they from? <laughs> no one knows. Some historians believe these men were from the Parthenian Empire, which was located northeast of Palestine in an ancient region where Iran is now. The point is, there is much fable and folklore out there about these ancient magi. The most important question, though, is this. How would these ancient, non-Jewish, Gentile, Zoroastrian priests have known about a promised Jewish Messiah being born in Palestine? How did that happen? These priests had been part of a pagan and superstitious religious system. So how was it that they would be searching for the Jewish Messiah? The amazing part is that most Jewish scholars at this time weren't even aware that Messiah had been born. So how did these non-Jewish men find out about this? How did that happen? Let me mention a distinct possibility. 
historical evidence indicates that some magi were converted to Judaism during the period of the Babylonian captivity. We studied the Babylonian captivity extensively in our Daniel series. The Babylonian captivity was that time period where the Babylonian armies under the auspices of Nebuchadnezzar invaded the southern Jewish kingdom of Judah, captured some of those inhabitants and brought them to Babylon. The Babylonian captivity occurred in three separate stages. The first stage was in 606 BC when Nebuchadnezzar captured certain promising young adult Jewish men such as Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those four men were brought to Babylonia to be trained, to be strategic leaders throughout that empire, and those four men served right beside the Magi in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Remember, Daniel interpreted dreams that those Magi weren't able to interpret, and because of that, he was placed in charge of Nebuchadnezzar's Magi. So Daniel and his three Jewish friends started evangelizing, started influencing the Magi in the teachings of ancient Judaism. There's no question, no question, the different teachings and prophecies from the ancient Jewish scriptures started infiltrating the Magi's belief system. That's the reason some of those Magi converted to Judaism. From those Jewish associations, those Magi were made conscious of a promised Messiah. And this Messianic awareness continued to increase among the Magi throughout the centuries until these specific Magi's here in Matthew 2 put together some Old Testament Messianic prophetical passages and started a serious search to find the Messianic child, Jesus. I believe there's something else to consider. Remember, Magi were Zoroastrian priests. And Zoroastrianism emphasized a combination of astronomy and astrology. And the Magi often confused them. Zoroastrianism was part science and part astrological superstition. And there is a difference. Astronomy is a legitimate science. And, astro and astrology is a pseudo-science, meaning a fraudulent science, a false science. Probably the most common astrological practice is reading horoscopes. People want to know, what is your sign? Um, it doesn't matter. Because uh, horoscopes is just unscientific foolishness. Astrology is actually considered an occultic practice. The problem is those magi sometimes confused astronomy and astrology and practiced them both. Now, because of this extensive background in astronomical science, that's the legit science, and even astrological superstition, the fraudulent science, it's easy to see how these magi were extremely susceptible to astronomical phenomena. That's the reason God used a star to direct them to where this messianic child could be found. Each Christmas, planetariums and astronomers attempt to explain that Christmas star. 
Some feel it might have been the planet Jupiter. Some feel it might have been some unidentifiable comet of some sort, or the conjunction or alignment of two unknown planets, or an exploding new star called a supernova, or some other explainable phenomena. I don't accept those explanations. None of them, I believe, are acceptable. The reason I don't is because the star directed these men, these magi, to the specific house, the precise particular house where the child was at that moment. The star acted as a GPS and pinpointed the precise geographical location, the actual house, the actual spot where Jesus was. And that's something an ordinary star or even a superordinary star would not have been able to do. Verse 9. When they, these magi, heard the king, they departed. And behold, this star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. This might be conjecture on my part, but I believe this star could have been some form of God's Shekinah glory. God's Shekinah glory. In Scripture, and in the Old Testament in particular, God sometimes manifested part of His presence to man in the form of a bright, brilliant, multicolored cloud. And this bright, almost blinding cloud of light was called His Shekinah. That Shekinah represented His, his presence and His glory. I might add, God's intrinsic glory is the sum total of all of his attributes as God, meaning the sum total of all that he is that causes him to be God. So in the Old Testament, God used the Shekinah as a navigational aid. In Exodus, remember God showed Moses and some three million Israelites how to negotiate through the desert using a pillar of cloud in the daylight hours, and then a pillar of fire at night. Both phenomena, we believe, were manifestations of his Shekinah presence. Now, to be honest, no one knows for sure what the star was. No one knows. It might have been God manifesting some of his Shekinah presence in the form, some form of a unique and unusual star. No one knows. Somehow, though, this star signified to these magi that Jesus, this messianic child, had been born. And it showed them exactly where he was. It seems as though it descended from heaven and landed virtually right on top of this house. And that's amazing. That's miraculous. There's another interesting misconception. The magi did not, did not visit Jesus the night of his birth. We don't know the exact exact, precise location of Jesus' birth. I mean, we do know it was in Bethlehem. But we do know that soon after his birth, he was placed into a manger. A manger was a trough used for feeding animals. And because animals were fed in troughs, found in and around stables, that's how we got the idea Jesus was born in an area that acted as a stable. So there were animals present, since there was a manger present uh, that 
you know, people would use to feed animals from. But notice, though, these magi did not visit Jesus in a stable. According to verse 11, the magi found Jesus in a house. That means the traditional nativity scene that includes the wise men, as our nativity scene is, uh, is actually incorrect. It's inaccurate because the wise men weren't there. I understand the practical reason in putting the wise men there because we want to create, recreate the entire Christmas narrative. And that would include the wise men. We don't want to leave them out, so we include them. Uh, And that's fine. As I said, some benign artistic license is permissible. That's fine. I get that. That's all good. I don't want to see a nativity scene without the wise men. I want them there. That's all good. But understand, in a technical, historical sense, the wise men did not visit Jesus in the manger. Verse 11, And when they had come into the house, these magi had come into the house, not a manger, not a stable, a house, They saw the young child with Mary, his mother. According to verse 11, Jesus and his biological mother Mary are described as being in a house. So the Magi found Jesus in that house. And that might have happened weeks, months, or as long as two years after Jesus was actually born. Let me demonstrate how there might have been a sizable time gap between Jesus' actual birth and when those magi found him. Notice verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Verse 2. Saying, where is he who has been born? Notice, this is past tense. Where is he who has been born, not where is he who is scheduled to be born. This is past tense. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So these magi go to Jerusalem, uh, go to Herod's palace, and say to him, where is this promised Messiah that has been born? Remember the Hebrew word Messiah and the Greek word Christ are essentially the same thing. Both Messiah and Christ, both words mean the anointed ruler. The anointed ruler. The Messiah would be that one special person God had chosen to anoint as the ultimate ruler and king of the Jewish people. Now notice the wise men ask Herod the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is this Messiah? Meaning these magi wanted Herod to tell them where to find him. Where was this special anointed ruler from God? Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, notice his reaction. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod felt politically threatened at the birth announcement of this Messiah. He mistakenly felt that a Messiah could be competition for him. I mean, Messiah was born to be a king, and another king would be a problem for him. He felt this Messiah would want his position. So Matthew said Herod was troubled and 
he used a word that meant shaken or agitated, similar to the heavy-duty cycle of a washing machine. So like Elvis, Herod was all shook up. And um, he regained his composure, though, and he decided to be a diplomat. Notice what he did next, verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, Messiah, was to be born. So Herod pulled together this religious brain trust, consisting of these Jewish religious authorities, scribes and Pharisees, and said to them, where is this Messiah? Exactly where is it that he was predicted to be born? Verse 5, so they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, that was the prophet Micah. Verse 6, he's, these men are quoting from Micah, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Remember at the beginning of this passage, the Magi just showed up in Palestine and started asking around for this Messiah. And no one seemed to know where the Messiah would be born. Herod didn't know. And once he had heard about him, he wanted to know. So he asked the resident Jewish scholars where this Messiah might be born. These men searched the Old Testament and found this messianic passage that is mentioned in verse 6. Centuries before this, the prophet Micah, in Micah 5 verse 2, Micah had prophesied that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. More on that next Sunday. Verse 7, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me. Please notice this that I may come and worship him also. Herod essentially said he wanted to find the Messiah because he wanted to worship the Messiah. I don't think so. Herod had an ulterior evil motive for finding Messiah. His motive for finding this Messiah was to eliminate his potential competition. He wanted to murder the Messiah. He called a secret meeting, pulled the Magi in and said to them, Gentlemen, I need you to find this messianic child. Bring me back the information that I need to be able to go to where he is so I can worship him myself. That was a complete lie, an absolute fabrication, a total lie. Actually, according to verse 12, after these Magi did find the messianic child, an angel, through the means of a dream, exposed Herod's evil scheme and instructed those wise men to go home through another route so as to avoid Herod altogether. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time 
which he had determined from the wise men. It is probable that some months had passed after the Magi had first met Herod and then had gone on to find the child. It is probable some months had passed and this time lapse caused Herod to suspect that those Magi probably weren't going to be coming back to him as he requested, and probably weren't going to be sharing the location of Messiah as he had asked them to do. So he realized that these men were avoiding him on purpose. He didn't know where this Messiah was. And he was so upset and so determined to eliminate his potential competition that he gave the decree to execute all male children in and around Bethlehem in order to assure the death of this messianic child. That was an unbelievable atrocity. He actually issued a decree to murder all male children age two and under from in and around that region so as to ensure the death of this messianic child. His rationale was, I don't know where this Messiah is, but I know sort of a time frame, and if we can eliminate all the male children throughout this region that were born during that time frame, then I'm sure he will be a part of that, that massacre. That's called infanticide. Infanticide. And according to Proverbs 6, verse 17, infanticide is a heinous evil and something that God hates. And still we have pro-abortionist people in this nation that are open to taking the life of a child, not just unborn, but taking the life of a child after birth. God pity us. The point is that Herod determined the age of the children to be murdered from the time when he first spoke to the Magi. So it might have been, this is possible, might have been up to almost two years after Jesus was born, before those Magi actually found him, and that means the wise men did not see Jesus in a stable or in a manger. The Magi probably came wearing um, long cone-shaped hats like a wizard would wear. We've all seen that depicted. Chances are those men did not ride on camels as is normally depicted. Instead, they probably rode Persian steeds or Arabian horses. Then notice the particular gifts these magi brought for Jesus, verse 11. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The first gift was gold. Gold was the most expensive of these gifts. Historians record that ancient societies used gold for jewelry and different accessories for the rich. Ancient kings wore gold uh, as part of royal attire, apparel. Joseph was vice-regent next to Pharaoh in Egypt, and he wore a gold, solid gold neck chain. Daniel was also given a gold chain as a ruler in Babylon. Ancient rulers also held gold scepters, scepters made from solid gold. So in giving Jesus gold, these men substantiated that Jesus, as the promised Messiah, had been born a king. He was born a king. The second gift was frankincense. Frankincense. In the original language, this word frankincense meant pure incense. 
pure incense. In the Old Testament, frankincense was stored in front of the temple in a container. The reason being that frankincense, this incense, was added to an animal sacrifice. People brought animals to be sacrificed to the temple, and there was this container that was full of this incense. Some of that incense would be added to the sacrifice in order to create a flavor and aroma that would, in a symbolic sense, float up from that sacrifice into heaven and to God himself. According to Deuteronomy 30, frankincense was an incense intended primarily for God's pleasure and not for the people. So in giving this frankincense, these magi demonstrated that Jesus was God. And he deserves our sacrifice and our worship. The third gift is myrrh. Myrrh was a perfume that was extracted from a small tree located in Arabia. Myrrh was used in Proverbs 7, verse 17, to perfume a bed. Myrrh was used in Psalm 58, verse 4, to put onto clothing. Myrrh was a prototype to deodorant. Queen Esther used myrrh uh, when she started getting dressed to see the king to argue on behalf of of her people. Myrrh and wine would also sometimes be combined together to form an anesthetic, a narcotic, a painkiller. In fact, that combination of myrrh and wine was given to Jesus on the cross, intending to numb his pain. But remember, he rejected it. He wouldn't drink it. Then the most often use of myrrh was to embalm dead bodies. Myrrh was actually used to prepare the body of Jesus to be buried. So in giving Jesus this gift of myrrh, these magis were in a prophetic symbolic sense demonstrating that Jesus as a man was scheduled to die. So these are the three gifts. Gold symbolizing the fact Jesus would be a king. Frankincense symbolizing or representing his divine nature. He was God. And then Myrrh predicting his sacrificial death. The situation was, these magi brought these three precious gifts and managed to find the star located right above the house where Jesus was. And then what exactly did those magi do after finding Jesus? Verse 11, again. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and notice fell down and worshipped him. These men come into the house, see Mary, his biological mother, and see the child, the Christ child, the Messianic child, and immediately fall down on the ground and worshipped him. Most of us have seen the familiar Christmas slogan printed onto Christmas cards and other Christmas items. It reads, wise men still seek him. And wise men do still seek him. Evangelical congregations sometimes advertise themselves as um, seeker-driven. We're not that. Or seeker-centered. We're not that. Or seeker-sensitive. And we are more of that. We don't capitulate to seekers. But we are sensitive to them. 
Uh, we need to be careful, though, that we understand what it means to be a spiritual seeker, because in a theological sense, Romans 3, verse 11 reads, quote, There is none who seeks after God. That verse reads that no one is a spiritual seeker. But what it means is that no unsaved person, no unregenerate person, meaning no person that hasn't experienced a second birth, a spiritual birth, that person cannot seek after God on his own. God has to enable someone to seek him. Yes, these magi were determined and sincere seekers, but it was because God put into them the desire to seek the Messianic child, Jesus. So notice three things about these men as seekers and about spiritual seeking. One is that these magi wanted to find the truth about Jesus. These magi wanted to discover, to find the truth about Jesus the Messiah. There is a significant difference between being a seeker and a spectator. Spiritual spectators are in abundance, and these spectators might see God in action, but then create their own premature and most often erroneous conclusions as to what God is about. But true and sincere seekers aren't into superficial conjecture and guesses. True seekers are determined to seek and seek and seek and seek and do no matter what it takes to find the unadulterated truth. It is ironic to me that at the time Jesus was born, the most prestigious religious center on earth was located just six miles from his birthplace. The biggest concentration of religious academia at that time was concentrated in Jerusalem and was located just six miles from Bethlehem. But not one person, not one Jerusalem religious personality traveled those six short miles in order to find the truth. But in contrast to that religious establishment, those magi could have spent up to six months searching for Jesus. Some estimate those magi journeyed some, journeyed some 900 miles to Jerusalem in an attempt to find Jesus. That revealed a serious commitment to seeking out the truth. In contrast, though, to those ancient seekers, some people now are just too busy to find the answers to life's most important questions. Some people are just too caught up in all this craziness and all that we have to do in order to just, you know, find the time and take the energy and make it the effort to find the answer to life's most important questions. Questions such as, how did we get here? What are we here for? And what happens to us once we punch out of here? Remember, all Christians ultimately started out as sincere spiritual seekers, wanting to find the truth. Second, notice, these magi accepted the evidence that was available to them. These magi accepted the evidence that was available. Understand, salvation doesn't start at man. 
Salvation starts at God. And because God wants us to find Him, He gives us evidence to help us do that. In the case of this, these wise men, the evidence God made available to them were the Old Testament messianic prophecies, Micah 5, verse 2 in particular, and this special star. It's interesting, we don't have any indication from Scripture that anyone else was able to see that star. There's no evidence that Herod had seen that star or that anyone else at Jerusalem had seen that star. The only people, to our knowledge, that were actually able to see that star were those magi, those wise men. It was a special, custom-made star from God created as a sign or evidence to enable those magi to find Jesus. Those magi accepted the evidence God had provided, and that evidence ultimately brought them to the Christ child. Now, the evidence that is available to us now might be in the form of the Scriptures themselves, or in apologist arguments, in a magazine article, or a book, or Christian evidence from a CD or a DVD or a podcast or a YouTube video or from a radio or television sermon or through a Christian 12-step recovery program or from someone close to us that shares how Jesus radically changed them from the inside out. But if we accept the evidence that we do have, then God will give us more evidence and if we accept that, God will give us more evidence and more evidence and more evidence until if we're cooperative, that evidence brings us to Jesus. The exciting part is that before we were seeking God, God was seeking us. Because He wants us to have a meaningful relationship with Him and His Son Jesus. And that relationship does three basic things for us. Notice, it gives us complete and irreversible forgiveness. Complete and irreversible forgiveness from all sin, past, present, and future sin. And nothing matters more than forgiveness. Second, that relationship to God through Jesus gives us a life purpose, a reason to exist. And third, it gives us a guarantee of heaven. A guarantee of heaven. This life is not all that there is. I have said so often, death is just a comma in the continuation of life. There is another life after this life, and that life is infinite. And God guarantees that second life in heaven through Him, His Son. There's no better Christmas present than those things. Number three, these magi ultimately both recognized and received the truth about Jesus. These men, uh, finding the, the Messiah, both recognized and received the truth about Him. These magi recognized that this was a special child. And this child was special because He was more than human. He was God in human form. At Christmas, we use the theological word called incarnation. Incarnation means enfleshment, meaning God 
took on human form and flesh in the person of his son, Jesus. So this account that describes the Magi's response to finding Jesus in that house records a definitive statement on the identification of Jesus Christ. And most people miss this. An example, in Revelation chapter 19, John the Apostle, he's on this island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos, and he receives the contents to this book. And I, John, fell... This is Revelation 19 and verse 10. What happened was John started to worship a personality from heaven. We don't know who this was. Might have been an angel, might have been an archangel. Although we aren't sure who this person was, this individual categorically, emphatically rejected worship from John. Revelation 19 verse 10, And I, John, fell at his feet to worship him. Me and John fell on his face, on the ground, at the feet of this celestial personage, and he started to worship this anonymous being. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. This personage from heaven said to John, as John started to worship him, don't do that. Stop it. Don't do that. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren, who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. Worship God. Notice the explanation point used to emphasize the fact we are to worship God and only God. John was commanded to worship God. And since this person he started to worship wasn't God, this person didn't deserve to be worshipped. And this person understanding who he was as someone inferior to God didn't want to be worshipped. I want us to logically think through this argument. If God and God alone is to be worshipped, and if no one else besides God is to be worshipped, and these magi, after finding the messianic child in the house, are falling on the ground and worshipping Jesus, then the logical conclusion is that Jesus, this promised Messiah, has to be God. Jesus had to be God in order to deserve the worship from these magi. There was no other logical conclusion. God and God alone is to be worshipped. These magi were worshipping Jesus. Therefore, Jesus, the messianic child, has to be God. Jesus had to be God so he could become a sinless man. And he had to become a sinless man so that he qualified to be punished on the cross for the sins of humanity. And he had to do that in order that he could become the Savior, the forgiver. In closing, this is from an anonymous source. Some say he was just a good teacher. But good teachers don't claim to be God. Some say he was merely a good example but good examples don't mingle with prostitutes and sinners. Some say he was a madman, but madmen don't speak the way he spoke. Some say he was a crazed fanatic, but crazed fanatics don't draw children to themselves, and neither do they attract men of intellect like Paul or Luke to be their followers. Some say he was a religious phony, but phonies don't come back from the dead. 
Some say he was only a phantom, but phantom Phantoms can't give their flesh and blood to be crucified on a cross. Some say he was only a myth, but myths don't set the calendar for history. Jesus has been called the ideal man, an example of love, the highest model of religion, the foremost pattern of virtue, the greatest of all men, and the finest teacher who has ever lived. And all of these descriptions capture some elements of his character, but they all fall short of the full truth. The Apostle Thomas expressed it perfectly when he said, when he saw Jesus after the resurrection, my Lord and my God. That is Jesus. Jesus is both God and man. He is both divine and human. He is the God-man and is God. Jesus both deserves and demands our worship. And the first act of worship God requires is to believe on and receive His Son, Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Our heads are bowed. I'm curious how many in this room have, have, have participated in that first act of worship where we have accepted, we have received God's Son Jesus into our lives. We remember the time, the place, the event, the experience. We understood we, in our sin, could not save ourselves. We understood that Jesus and only Jesus was the solution to our sin problem and we reached out to Him by faith and we invited Him into our life. And we know that right now we have Christ. He inhabits us. And we know that because of Him and His forgiveness, we know that if we were to die today, that we would go to heaven. If you know that for a fact, without any doubt, any question, you know you have started the process of worshiping God through receiving His Son, would you raise your hand real high? Just raise your hand up. If you're confident, you know that you're a Christian, you know you have Christ, just raise your hand up. Thank you so much. I appreciate you raising your hands. I noticed some could not raise their hands. And... Uh, I, I can understand. I mean, it might be that you felt uncomfortable doing that or maybe you misunderstood me or maybe you just haven't made that decision for yourself. You haven't decided for Christ. You haven't experienced genuine salvation. You don't know you're going to heaven, but you want to. You're very interested. God is seeking you and you're the one that's lost and you want to be found. And I would beg you today, if you couldn't raise your hand, and if you have a desire to know Christ, to become a Christian, to have salvation, I beg you after the service to see me and say, Pastor, can we set up a, an appointment? I really want to meet you. I, I want to meet with you, and I want, to, I want to make this decision for myself. I want to know that I'm forgiven, and I want to know I'm going to heaven. I hope you'll do that. Father in heaven, thank you for what we've learned about your son and his birth and about who He is. And I just pray, God, if there's anyone here in this room who isn't prepared for the next life, if they don't have Jesus for themselves, I pray, God, that they will invite Him into their heart and their life soon, even today. So, God, don't let them rest. Trouble them until they make this decision, I pray. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.